turn now in your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 1. We looked at the purpose of discipleship in the last session. Now we're going to look at the power of discipleship, and we're continuing to see how the, the morning talk implications of gospel centrality are kind of working their way through. The, the dynamic there is now impacting each of these things, and of course, we'll into the next talk as well. Um, I alluded to kind of the church culture I grew up in. I, I, I hate to give them you know, such a bad rap, right? I mean, it, it wasn't a, um, you know, I didn't, you know, grow up in a kind of like fiery fundamentalist sort of uh, environment. There wasn't, a, you know, it was just kind of plain vanilla, um, garden variety, contemporary Baptist sort of um, culture. So, it, you know, wasn't anything overly uh, formal or, or pharisaical. Um, and yet sometimes the, the kind of um, legal climate that is produced by the garden variety, plain vanilla sort of church cultures can be in some ways more insidious than the outright explicit sort of hellfire and brimstone kind of environments, because those we naturally kind of um, uh, uh, are repelled by, <laughs> I guess. Um, it's the sort of uh, positive or casual legalism which is the most dangerous in some regards. And this is something I had to work through um, because I was you know, initially trained for ministry in kind of the attractional, what we used to call the seeker-sensitive, uh, you don't hear that phrase too much anymore, but the attractional church paradigm. And, it, you know, sort of working out my gospel centrality with fear and trembling was really uh, beginning to realize that the way I was trained for ministry was not any less legalistic than kind of the, the hyper-religious, formal uh, environments of, of, of uh, you know, of my raising. But just because we, you know, wore jeans and, and you know, played rock music and all those sorts of things didn't mean we were less legalistic. And in fact, all of the how-tos, the applicational stuff, you know, four ways to be a successful this, that, or the other thing, um, is just as legalistic as all of the uh, thou shalt nots. And in many ways is, is more, as I said, insidious because it, it, um, we're naturally repulsed, at least these days in, in, in the modern age, by the very uptight kind of hellfire and brimstone preacher. We are drawn in by the casual pop inspiration um, attractional sort of things, and we don't realize we're getting the same. We're just getting the flip side of the, of, of the law coin. So I don't, you know, try to give uh, the churches, as, you know, of my raising such a bad rap, but it really messed with my sense of fellowship of Christ to have everything um, about my Christian life oriented around how I was doing. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody else. But everything related to my sense of stability, status before God, was based on how I was doing. And even if you're doing really well, that's a poor standard to base your status before God. It can only lead to two places. One, despair and burnout, or self-righteousness. Those are really the only two, the only two options for that. So I remember this great dread of anxiety going to Sunday school. This is probably about sixth or seventh grade. Um, every Sunday school class would begin with the same two questions. Did you witness to somebody this week? And did you have your quiet time every day? Which, you know, those are pretty good questions. It's not like those are unimportant to, you know, working out our Christian life. But when that's how class started, and it was every single week, it really wasn't a motivator for me to share the gospel with people out of a love for their soul or... Or, or beholding the glory of Christ that I, I, you know, I have to run and tell that, but just more of a, man, I, I, I want to be able to answer this question, and I don't want to be, I don't want to feel guilty every, every Sunday school class, and I don't want them to disapprove of me, and I don't want to be the only kid saying no to these things. 
And similar, spending time with the Lord every day, right? You know, um, you know the spiritual disciplines are so vital to healthy uh, spirituality and to, and to healthy you know, Christian fellowship. And yet, when it's driven by guilt or, or, or the need to measure up, it, it is so stifling. So I had this sense of anxiety about these um, approaches to so-called accountability. And really, it, 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 it informed a kind of church culture or a Christian culture that made discipleship a hard yoke and a heavy burden. It was a lot of working for Jesus, and Jesus was kind of the boss man, you know, who you never saw until maybe Christmas time, right? The holiday party, he shows up to say hi to the, you know, the troops or something like that. Um, as I look back now, I think, man, there's a stunning lack of Jesus in, in our preaching and teaching. It was just a lot of law. What we had was essentially a Christ-deficient Christianity, a religion without ignition, a mission without a vision, a discipleship without power. And many Christians can't make heads or tails of why their spiritual lives are so sluggish or seemingly empty. And sometimes they haven't figured out that they're trying to do discipleship without the gospel. They haven't discovered that the gospel is for Christians that the gospel is for the Christian as much as for the lost person. And when you divorce the do of Christianity from the done of the gospel, you lead people into despair at worst and happy self-righteousness at best. And in a way, I think you can actually flip that. Despair is better than happy self-righteousness. Because <laughs> despair is often the last step to an awakening of the gospel. Well, the New Testament writers in their context are constantly reorienting us around the glory from which our efforts must flow, the energy which fuels our toil through hardship, through suffering, and just in the daily grind of taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following Jesus. That energy comes from the Holy Spirit who is working through the gospel. And Paul is positioning his Philippian friends and us in this passage, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all my partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul is, is, is keen here to emphasize the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in his life because he is keenly in touch with his own frequent powerlessness. Paul sees, and, and, and what a weirdo, he sees his imprisonment, his afflictions as an advantage. He ain't like us, or like most of us. He sees these things as actually advantages to him. Indeed, at this very moment, he's writing to the Philippian church from jail, more than likely a Roman prison, and he's in a great pain of some kind. And he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Philippi 
to encourage them and thank them for their support of his ministry. In verse 12, he writes, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, which is a really curious thing to say, given that he has literally been stopped from advancing. He's in prison, and he's saying, this has taken the gospel so many places. This gospel is going so far because of this. Here, Paul is stripped down, he is laid bare, he is hemmed in, and he is overcome, and he knows that if his discipleship to Christ can't work in the cellar of affliction, it can't work anywhere. A Christian disciple is a student follower of Jesus. And Jesus leads us very often to some pretty difficult places, doesn't he? So it's important to notice in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3-11 through 11, that Paul doesn't seem to think his followership of Jesus is hindered in the slightest by hardship. He doesn't see this as an interruption at all, but, but actually as the focus, as the point of the whole thing. If anything, he sees himself in a better position to know, verse 11, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Because the less of him in the way, the more of Jesus that shines through. 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is something missing in so much modern thinking by the church, even on the subject of discipleship. We have an abundance of resources. We have access to a wealth of Bible study tools, techniques, technological proximity to some of the most knowledgeable and most dynamic teachers in the world. I mean, we live in it. You have the Word of God in your pocket now and can call up any verse just with a few clicks. We used to have to look through those big books, concordances. Anybody remember the concordance? What a pain. You couldn't carry that around in your pocket. You had a, what's that Bible verse? I have to go home. What's that verse say about, I don't know, it's in my office. I'll have to go back and figure it out. Now you just pull it out, look it up, Google, log off. You want to hear somebody preach the best sermon you ever heard? You just pull up the latest conference. We have so many conduits and pipelines and programs and systems. And we ought to thank God for all of it, actually. We have this abundance of riches, which are all blessings. But it's become deceptively easy to think of discipleship as something that we can manage and carry out in our own power. Because discipleship is not about self-fulfillment, but Christ's glory. Self-fulfillment can be accomplished in our own strength, but the glory of Christ, we need power from on high, power that only comes through the Holy Spirit working in the gospel. So we see in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11, the observable practices that make a Christian disciple a Christian disciple. We see prayer, church participation, study and knowledge of the things of God. These are elements of the program. But what Paul is pointing to beneath and through the program is power. He's pointing us to the power of discipleship. The aim of discipleship to Christ is becoming more like Christ. Remember last session? Transformation is about Christ-likeness. And if we don't have the power of Christ, the prospect of Christ-likeness becomes a non-starter. The question is, where does that power come from? Is the gospel power only for your justification, or does it power your sanctification as well? The gospel is for the Christian. So for Paul, discipleship to Christ must be discipleship powered by the gospel of Christ. 
And it seems to be, in fact, that the center point of the entire passage is verse 6. This, I think, is the, 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 the hub of the, of the entire wheel here. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. They do good works. The Philippian church does good works. We do good works. But we have to understand that our work is but our working out of what he has worked in to us. Just as he says in chapter 2. Ultimately, Jesus must do the work or it will not be done. We need the power of his grace. And in fact, one of the, uh, um, the only things uh, uh, worse than uh, failing in ministry is succeeding in ministry without Jesus. Growing something without the Holy Spirit. That's worse. So reflecting on Philippians 1, verses 3-11, through 11, what do we learn about gospel-powered discipleship? The first thing is this. Prayer is a position of gospel power. Prayer is a position of gospel power. This text, like the previous text that we looked at, Ephesians chapter 3, is formed as a kind of prayer itself. This text is itself a prayer and an elaboration on a prayer. Verse 3, I give thanks to my God. What is that? That's a prayer. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. And I'm always, I'm always praying for you. I pray for you with joy in all of my prayers. Verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. How did this experience begin? How did your experience of discipleship begin? It begins where every open-hearted surrender to the Lord begins in the exercise faith of prayer. Alec Meyer says, the church at Philippi was quite literally born in the place of prayer. And he's making reference to Acts chapter 16 where we see the conversion of Lydia so influential in the beginning of the, of, of the Philippian church. Why does prayer position us for gospel power? Well, as we said in the last session, because prayer is relinquishing the illusion that we are in control, that we have what it takes. When we're not engaged in prayer, we are even just subconsciously asserting, I got this. And if I don't got it, I can figure it out. Prayer is essentially acknowledged helplessness. That's what prayer is. And the extent to which we are not engaged in prayer is the extent to which we are relying on our own strength. I know a lot of churches that have a lot of plans, strategies, vision, books, workshops, consultants, creativity, and all of those things are, are, are good things in and of themselves. But it's possible that we are filling ourselves with those things and it's preventing us from being filled by the Spirit. There's a little story that kind of Ran rampant for a while. I think it's somewhat apocryphal. I don't know because there's no names attached to it. But it said that a Korean pastor came to visit some of the churches in the United States and kind of toured around for a little bit. And when he was about to go back, they asked him for kind of a summary of his observations. What do you think of the church in America? And the Korean pastor said, it's amazing what the church in America can do without the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's pretty convicting. In a lot of evangelical churches today, you would think that the statement of faith should say, we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ingenuity, or the Holy Creativity, or the Holy Works Righteousness. But if the Holy Spirit is not at work amongst us, we have nothing. 
And the more we push prayer out of our planning and our preparation and our production, the more we quench the Holy Spirit's work, actually frustrating what we mean to accomplish. The experience of the supernaturality of Christianity is impotent without the submission of Christians to God in prayer. Prayer is man and woman reduced to their proper proportion before a holy God who alone is in control. In prayer, we shrink down to what we really are, dependent on our Creator. Robert Murray Machane says, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And I wonder if, if Paul, suffering in this jail, and holding the Philippians in his heart, as he says, is maybe thinking back to the time that he and Silas had been attacked and tortured and thrown in jail in Philippi. And maybe he's staring at the cell doors and he's thinking about Philippi. And he's looking at the stone walls around him and he's thinking about Philippi. Well, he had to have remembered that night that they were singing and praying. And the bars burst open. Prayer is a position of gospel power. Secondly, partnership is a participation in gospel power. Partnership is a participation in gospel power. Now that word, partnership, I didn't make that up, that comes from Paul himself, verses 5 and 7, partnership. I'm applying the importance of that to the necessity of, of covenanting with a local church. The importance, the necessity, uh, necessity, in fact, of church membership for those who would follow Jesus, that we become parts of the body of Christ. And so Paul is speaking to the church at Philippi, covenanting with each other and with him in the reconciling grace of the gospel. Now there's two dangers related to the central place of the local church and the discipleship of the Christian. The, the first is just outright neglect, right? None of you are guilty of this. But there are people that we know, right, who seek to follow Jesus apart from participating in the life of a local church. And they're trying to do discipleship completely apart from God's design for discipleship. The New Testament doesn't know anything of solo Christianity. But if you're a pastor or at a pastor's conference or some other event, it's not likely you're thinking of discipleship separated from the local church. but So there is another danger to be aware of, one that's a little more subtle, perhaps more common. And it's basically we try to do local church discipleship in an individualistic way. So we're part of a church, but we're just sort of fomenting individualism in the context of being all together. We're, all, we're, we're, we're alone together, basically. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in, in, in the last session. But um, think of the ways even... Um, some local church you know, uh, ministries facilitate and accommodate individualism that can undermine the integrity of discipleship. I'll, I'll give you just a little reflection. Um, when I was a part of that attractional megachurch uh, that I referenced earlier, and I was leading the young adult ministry, and this church went through all these different variations of small group programs. So they were basically saying, our people are not in community with each other, they're not experiencing community, and so we need to solve this, we need to troubleshoot this problem. And so what they did was they created a small group program that was built around, uh, around demographics, around age groups. So here, here's the 18 to whatever somethings, you know, uh, small group, and here's the 30-something small group, and here's the you know, parents of little children small group, and, here's, and they created all this thing. Nobody cared. Nobody was interested. Nobody showed up to any of it. 
So they said, oh, and they're like, no one's really you know, into this. We need to figure out something else. So they said, let's do affinity-based small group. So um, we got the small group, and this was really strange too. So you, know, you, you look at this listing. I remember the little booklet that came out, all the different small groups that you could look at. And there was a drum circle, which I didn't even know what that was. Um, people want to play the drums, I guess. I don't know. Uh, there was a softball. If you want to play softball, there was a small group. There was a, um, brush hogging the backfield. You like tractors and mowing? Like you, there was a small group for you. Um, and, it, and then, thankfully, there was, like one or, there was like one or two Bible studies. Like, if you're into that Bible stuff, we've got a couple of groups for you, know, for you, that kind of thing. And nobody cared. Nobody went to any of it. The, it, it, you know, it just didn't work. So they created another couple of variations. Nobody ever got interested. Well, they were trying to trust a program to create a desire for the program and never quite asked themselves, why don't people want this? Well, if you wandered into our church on Sunday morning over a series of Sunday mornings, what you would discover is um, the lights are real, you know, real low, so you can't even see other people. So it's as if you're by yourself. The songs are all about you being the best kind of you, and the sermons are all about you being the best kind of you. So, and then you leave, and nobody, you don't see anybody really, or you know, uh, I mean that's an overstatement, but generally it's kind of an uh, individualistic, anonymous almost um, experience. And then they're trying to figure out, why don't these people want to know each other? Why isn't community happening when they're basically facilitating more and more religious individualism in the, in the primary means of communication? This is what a lot of consumeristic churches do, because that sort of thing sells. Be the best version of you, that sells. And so we just sort of put the Jesus stuff on top of it. The consumeristic church experiences that operate more as religious resource centers for those who are pursuing self-fulfillment more than as a place to practice the one another's of the New Testament, those things stifle actual experience of discipleship and community. So the church is designed, um, in reality, to disintegrate self-centered Christianity, and there are so many churches that are um, only sort of nurturing self-centered Christianity. We are designed to be partnering with each other. About three or four years ago, um, I was... Um, I, had a speaking engagement out in, um, in L.A., and the host was, I, you know, I didn't know any of the people there, and um, the host was telling me that one of the church members was uh, an employee at Disneyland and could get me a ticket to go to Disneyland. I'm a big Disney geek, but I had never been to Disneyland. I've been to Disney World multiple times, never been to Disneyland. Oh, this is going to be awesome. I get to go to Disneyland. And, uh, you know, so like they had this little ticket in my, uh, you know, welcome basket and everything. And, and, and so what the, you know, the um, admin was telling me as I'm communicating, they said, um, Pastor Chris, who is the, you know, the pastor of that church, and, uh, Pastor Chris would be more than glad to go with you. He can, you know, he can take the day off and spend the day with you at, at, um, at Disneyland if you'd like, but you know, it, you know, if you wouldn't prefer that. And I was just thinking, man, I don't know Chris. Like, I don't, like what if he's a loser? You know? Like, and, you know, not like me. You know? what, if he's, uh, what if he's weird? What if he's boring? Um, what if he's strange? And also, I couldn't think of anything creepier than walking around Disneyland, two, just two bros just walking around Disneyland. Well, so I said, no, no, thank you. Well, I discovered what's creepier than two bros walking around Disneyland. One bro walking around Disneyland. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on me. Um, I was doing fine. I was doing great. Uh, if you've ever been to Disney World, Disneyland, you know, like when you go through the line, when you get to the end, they ask you how many are in your party. Like that was just, I died a little death every single time. I'm like, just one. 
But, you know, sometimes things happen, like, you know, know, there are rides, for instance, uh, at Disney World that my wife likes that I don't, and rides that I like that she doesn't, and so sometimes you do that trade-off thing, it's not a big deal, no one's making up a story, but I knew in my heart, I'm here all by myself. And it didn't turn out real, um, it didn't really dawn on me until I went on It's a Small World. And (laughs) so I'm going on It's a Small World, and uh, this is before COVID, by the way, Uh, so this is like three or four years ago, but they put a buffer row, they put me on the back row of the boat by myself. And then there's an empty row, and then there's like this family of four, like the normal people who are at Disney, you know, at Disney. There's like a mom and dad and two little kids. And they put this empty row, and I, it dawned on me as we're like, you know, floating around through the thing, and the song's going, that there's this empty row between me and this family. I was like, oh, I'm creepy. That's like, it's on me. Like, they just know, like, I cannot put this guy next to this family. Like, it's, it's so weird. And so I got out of fantasy land, <laughs> you know, I, I thought maybe I'll do some other parts of the world. And so it was just weird. It, you know, I mean, there were things I enjoyed about it, but the whole thing was just not, like, by design. Well, the, you know, Pastor Chris, by the way, when I met, like, he's a fantastic guy, one of my best friends now. Uh, but I just thought, it would have been so awesome to go to Disneyland with this guy if I had just, you know, trusted the Lord, I guess, in those moments. Uh, but he invited me back. So this was, like, early in the year, and he's like, you know, we're going to have you back next fall. We want to bring your wife and daughters out um, as well. And he had teenage girls, and I had teenage girls. And so he said, we're going to bring you all out. We're all going to go to Disneyland together. And so we all went. There was, there was eight of us, two, you know, two families of four, and we all did Disneyland together. And, man, we didn't get to do all the stuff that I wanted to do. You know, there were things that I you know, wanted to enjoy that we didn't do and you know, things that would have been on my agenda that if I were by myself, I could have got them all done if I wanted to get them done. But it was so much fun just seeing people enjoy each other and enjoy That's how Disneyland is designed to work. Now, I know I'm stretching the metaphor here, but this is what church is meant to be like. You may not get to do all the stuff you want to do. It may not be tailored exactly the way that you would tailor it. You know, I, I you know, freak my own pastors out sometimes when I say, you know, if I was designing church, it wouldn't look like this. <laughs> you know, they think, oh gosh, what would you do different? Is there something wrong here? And it's like, no, that, that's beside the point. Church isn't meant to be an oriented around me experience. But we all bring that into our churches sometimes and it becomes sort of, uh, you know, um, lines that we dare our churches to cross in terms of our own preferences. And church isn't meant to be like that. We're meant to serve the other. Partnership is the participation in what the gospel has created. How? Because it truly takes something as supernatural as the gospel to get us out of our own little self-improvement project, doesn't it? Something as powerful as the gospel to get us outside of our own concern with the building up of ourselves and look to the building up of others. In, 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 uh, in Romans, Paul um, says, let each of us serve our neighbor for their good, that they would be built up, to put their needs ahead of ourselves. The good news of Jesus at work in a church isn't primarily aimed at personal fulfillment, believe it or not. It's aimed at reconciliation, at reconciling power, us to God, and us to each other. Partnership is the point. So we look at the language that Paul uses. Verse 7, I have you in my heart. Verse 8, affection. He's using the language of affection. This isn't toleration. This isn't simply, I see you, I allow you to exist in my religious world. You're all supporting characters in the story of me. This is, no, you are someone made in God's image, and he loves you, and I love you. I love you. Well, how do you get there? How do we get there? Something powerfully transformative has to take place. 
We have to be careful about church experiences where what we have in common is something other than the gospel. It doesn't mean there's there's anything wrong with that. It doesn't mean we can't worship with people who are like us. (laughs) But it means we have to be careful about that. Because if you subtracted the gospel from that equation, you can still have affinity. And when that happens, you may not even notice because you're just enjoying the... um, you know, the similarity of everybody. You may not even notice the power is gone. What other than the power of the gospel could in fact make friends out of strangers and family out of enemies? This is why we ought to be concerned about things like reaching those in the socioeconomic and cultural margin. Why we should be concerned about things like ethnic diversity. Not because it scores points with cultural gatekeepers. Not because we're trying to please some you know, diversity quotient in the world. But because it reflects God's design for the church. It reflects His vision that every tongue, tribe, race, and nation would be worshipers of Him and reflecting His beauty. To do church community right means we have to die to ourselves. As he puts it in Romans 15. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. We have an obligation, he says. This is Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. And in Romans 12, 10, he says, Love one another as brothers and sisters deeply and outdo one another, showing honor. Now, you can find in all kinds of churches people only serving their own interests and looking out only for themselves and their own fulfillment, spiritual or otherwise. But only in a church centered on the gospel can we find born strangers and sworn enemies enjoying the harmony which Christ died to purchase. It only happens by grace. So we need to only consider the forming of the Philippian church, right? What what an odd group this is. What an odd consortium of conversions. You have the Philippian jailer. This is how the church started. Philippian jailer. Lydia the businesswoman, a demoniac girl. This is the seeds of a church plant. None of you are are, are thinking, this is what I need on my my team, a, a former demoniac, right? All of them reconciled to God by the power of His grace and made a family by the power of His blood. And so the church must exist not simply as a center for discipleship programs, but really more so as a laboratory for grace. What can grace do with these people? What does grace look like with these specific people? What would gospel-driven relationships look like? Let's experiment. What would it look like to, to be good news people here? And we put grace to the test when we truly partner in the gospel with each other. And when we do that, we get to see actually how powerful the gospel is. Partnership is a participation in the gospel power. Thirdly, preaching is the medium of gospel power. Preaching is the medium of gospel power. It's designed to be spoken. It's designed to be spoken. Verse 7, indeed, it's right for me to think of this way all, all about you, about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That last phrase, de- the defense and confirmation of the gospel, it could refer to a variety of things, but initially it refers to the evangelistic witness and apologetic contention of advancing the mission of Jesus in the world. Just as Paul is advancing the gospel in his imprisonment, 
He sees the Philippians as partners in that missionary work by their support. But more broadly speaking, we see here an affirmation of the basic building blocks of discipleship, which is studying and communicating the Word of God. So by preaching, I don't mean necessarily the declaring of God's Word from the pulpit. It includes that, but it's really the broader New Testament sense of studying and sharing the Gospel, preaching the good news which in the evangelistic and disciple-making sense is something necessary for every follower of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus is meant to be a preacher in this sense of the gospel. What a strange thing we Christians believe, that the power of transformation today and tomorrow is fundamentally something that happened yesterday. That, it, that it's a newspaper headline that changes hearts. The message of what Jesus has done in history, His sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, that that's what actually transforms people. A defense and confirmation of the gospel. We're not dealing primarily with a life system, a religious code, a set of tips or instructions for more successful behavior. Christianity is fundamentally about raising the dead. That's what it's about. Would anybody, after receiving the latest gobbledygook from Tony Robbins or uh, Oprah Winfrey or somebody like that, uh, write a song like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We are saved by grace alone, which is received through faith alone. And this is not the result of our works. It comes from the Lord ever and always. The message of the gospel is an announcement about what God has done in Christ. So we don't preach ourselves. And when it goes forth in power, it's because God has done it. The gospel is not made more powerful by a dynamic preacher. It's not made more powerful by a rock and worship band. Those things can adorn the gospel in an excellent way, but the gospel cannot be improved. The message of Christ's sinless life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection is capital S, spiritual power, all unto itself. So here's the reality. If you know the gospel, you have the greatest power in the world at your disposal. Wow. He stewarded that to you. The greatest power in the universe. The difference between life and death. Now, you don't get to decide who believes and who it's actually going to transform, but being able to, to, to cast that seed, that message by which people are transformed, he said, you're the ones who are going to go run and tell this stuff. What a, what a sacred stewardship. What a power to be able to preach this message. The new covenant, Paul writes, is of the Spirit. In fact, the only thing the Bible calls power is the gospel. If we're looking at why gospel centrality, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Ephesians 3.7, Paul says the gospel was given to him by God's power. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says the gospel is accompanied with power. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says the message of the gospel is the power of God. In Colossians 1, he says this message, the gospel is going into the world. It is bearing fruit and growing. Like it's this alien force, this juggernaut. 
Why is it that we, want, we must center our discipleship, our teaching, our preaching, our counseling on the Gospel? Why we must embrace the central declaration in our sermons, not of behave, but behold. Because it's by seeing the glory of Jesus that people are changed. So we don't preach ourselves and we don't preach the law as making someone Christ-like. The law is good. It's good at what it's designed to do. Tell us what to do and reveal we can't do it perfectly. So it comes with conviction appropriately. It's the first word of the Lord. But the good word, the better word, is the word of the blood of Christ. So we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Preaching is the medium of gospel power. Fourthly and finally, perseverance is an embrace of gospel power. Perseverance is an embrace of gospel power. So let's not forget, as we talk about the gospel being power, we get to preach it, that message transforms people, right? They can't believe if they don't hear, they can't hear unless someone preaches, can't preach unless people are sent. It's not magic words. It's not like a magic formula here. There's nothing, in, it's, it's not sorcery taking place. The gospel is the historic announcement of Christ's sufficient work, which is then endowed with supernatural power by the Holy Spirit. So when we say gospel power, what we really mean is the Holy Spirit applying the message of good news of Jesus to the hearts of those who hear. And this includes Christians. Verse 9, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. He's not looking... Uh, for something other than personal holiness. He's just telling us where it actually comes from. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Verse 11, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying essentially for their endurance in Christ's likeness, for their sanctification, in other words. That they would keep pursuing what they have already found in the Holy Spirit's pursuit of them. Just as in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we already attained. Here, he, he, he self-applies um, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 3 this way. I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus Himself. So the emphasis is on obedience and the pursuit of holiness, yes. But the connection is unmistakable. That the power of God is the only power to see those efforts through. Verse 11, the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Not your efforts, Jesus Christ. What all of these points re-emphasize for us is that if we will be made like Christ, it will be the work of the Lord that does it. And yes, He works through our works, but He even predestines our works and fuels our works. He created those works beforehand that we would step into them. And when we arrive at the end, more like Christ, it will not be a merit badge that we receive, but the fulfillment of the faith that itself was a gift from Him. It's almost as if the Lord says, um, you know, because without faith it's impossible to please God. He says, you need some faith to please me. Here, have some faith. He gives to us what He requires from us. What a gracious God. What a gracious God. Only by the shedding of blood is your sin forgiven. Let me send my son to shed his blood. That's a, that's a gracious God. Whatever crown of glory we receive is tangential to the fact 
that it is Christ who receives his reward at the end, which is creatures and a creation that reflect his glory and celebrate his accomplishment. It would be nice in a way if discipleship were simply a matter of checking off the list, moving through the classes, but this is why we ought to be careful, cautious about our programs. We ought to use them, thank God for them, but we shouldn't confuse them with spiritual growth because it's deceptively easy to think that simply because someone is passing the test that they are growing spiritually. Discipleship is often more messy than that. And following Jesus daily is a daily reaffirmation of, apart from Him, how sinful we are, how weak we are, how needy we are, and how in Him, how forgiven we are, how strong we are, how satisfied we are. If we will renounce ungodliness and live upright lives, Paul says in Titus 2, it's grace that trains us to do that. You know, sometimes when people are giving their testimonies, um, I get a little jealous because, like they remember, man, it was June 12, 1997, you know. They know the exact date and exactly what was happening. I, I, can't, I can't do that. Like I look back and I've, I've, I've kind of waffled back and forth because I, you know, I believe I've been a Christian a long time. But there was a moment when I was about five or six years old where I walked the aisle in response to a, an altar call in my church. And I went into a little counseling room and they you know, laid out a track in front of me. And I don't remember all that the track said. I remember it had a choo-choo train in it. I thought that was interesting, some kind of train. I remember the, I remember the imagery of it. But in some way, I, I asked Jesus into my heart. I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I believe I was a Christian. I was baptized thereafter. Then I hit about 12, 13 years of age, and I began thinking, like I had, you know, was having this sort of crisis of faith and you know, kind of working out some of what I believed. And I thought, gosh, how much would I have known when I was five or six? Did I really understand what it means to be a Christian? And I'm not sure. Like, I, you know, probably I was pretty ignorant then. So, you know, I was, you know, talking to my mother about it, and she said, well, if you're not sure, you should pray the prayer again. And you pray the prayer again, then you know for sure you can be saved. So I prayed the prayer again. I thought, this is it. This is the moment um, that I got saved. A few years after that, I, I, I realized, well, if I really got saved when I was 12 or 13, then I haven't really been baptized, and I need to be baptized again. So my, my whole journey is like this complete mess. It's like constellation of confusion. You know what it is? And, and so I really admire people who are like, I didn't grow up in the church, but man, you know, some street preacher, and I was just like, the Lord hit me in my heart. And like, I, I don't, you know, my conversion, I don't have that kind of moment. But this is what I'm sure of. Um, I'm sure of the love of God because I'm saved today. I think if I'm a Christian today, it's, it's by the grace of God. And I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but if I'm a Christian tomorrow, it's going to be by the grace of God. That's what I believe. His grace really is that powerful. It really is that sure. And in fact, I can be more sure of it than I can of me or any decision, prayer, anything I've ever prayed. Because all of that is just an expression of weakness of dependence, of, of, of faith, which is what faith is. It's just the, the, the empty hand of trust. By God's grace, I, I plan to trust Him tomorrow. That's, that's my plan. But I want to say, Lord willing, Lord willing, I'm trusting Him tomorrow. And I intend to keep intending towards the prize, but I know myself too well to think that if I get there, it's going to be because of my good intentions or because I'm a strong Christian or I'm a leader, or anything else other than His grace. If, that's, it, if I get there, it'll be by His grace. And I've been following Jesus for a little over 30 years, probably. 
And um, I thought I'd be more sanctified by now. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, right? Think, man, when is it like? When does it like kick in? Like for real? Like it just <laughs> holy? I'm suddenly you know. I really thought I'd be a lot more sanctified by now. Some days I'm worse than I was the day before. I'll say something or do something and think, ah, oh, I thought I was done with that. I thought I, I thought I was over that. Where did that come from? And so I've come to see discipleship and the power of the gospel not so much as becoming more improved, but becoming more reliant. If that makes sense. And every day I see more reasons to trust in myself less and in Him more. Every day I'm confronted by the reality that for Him to increase, I must decrease. And so following Jesus is really about re-following Him every day. This is why He says, every day take up your cross and deny yourself. I thank God that we wake up to new mercies every morning. And I'm going to keep on striving and pressing. But in the end, what gives me the energy and the freedom to pursue Christ-likeness is that Christ himself declared from the cross where he was paying for my sin, not get to work, but it is finished. What an odd thing. What a powerful thing. So I'm, I'm glad that God accepts our meager efforts and, and even rewards our meager efforts. But I, I thank God all the more that the perseverance of the saints is predicated on the perfection of the Son, not the perfection of the saints. If we are faithless, Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. When we fail, he succeeds. And his success is what defines us. His success is what defines us. Verse 6, I am sure of this. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing. When you think about how sinful we are, and we're worse than we, we like, I mean, you may be real honest with yourself, and, and, and you know you're a great sinner. You're actually worse than that. We, we are so much worse than we think we are, or we know we are. But we're not worse than he knows we are. Like, he knows exactly, he knows what sins we're going to commit tomorrow. And the next day, and for the rest of our lives, he sees everything. And I think of all the times that we mess up and, and, and things we can't assign to ignorance because we know better. How many times somebody should be saying to us, I've told you a million times. And we just keep falling into the same habits and the same ruts and the same sins. I find that remarkable. Like Most people don't try new sins. It's the same stuff all the time. Have you ever looking at a discipleship relationship or... You know, counseling somebody. I like get bored. Like, you want to try some new sin? I mean, this is getting old. Like, it's the same thing all the time. We just try this new, we're just, we're just trying the same old stuff all over and over again. And it's just life. We go through all of this. And then we're going to get to the end and we're going to crawl ourselves across that finish line and look up at the holy Jesus, our King. And he's going to look down at us, our sorry selves. And he's going to say, well done. Well done. That just blows my mind. He's, he's, he's so gracious. He is so gracious. I pray for you. We'll take another short break. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We would not have made this up. It, it makes too little of us and, and so much of you. It, this is one reason I, I, I know it must be true. It makes so much of you and so little of me. I thank you for the honesty, the clarity of your gospel.
Help me to embrace the, the power more and more. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pricking my heart and lifting my gaze up to uh, uh, behold the glory of your Son more and more. That I would come to trust him more and more and myself less and less. What a gift you've given us. What a precious gift. Stir our affections for, for it and, and, and for its object, your Son, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.